You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. This is a regular podcast series for HR practitioners, employment lawyers, and in-house counsel, focusing on the legal issues relevant to all companies with employees in Ireland. Hello and welcome. Today, in a departure from our normal format, I want to take a look at what we predict are going to be the five key themes for employers in Ireland over the next 12 months. To assist me with this, I've asked four of my other partners from the Matheson Employment Pensions and Benefits Group to join me here today. To kick this off, the first theme I want to look at is the increased level of financial services regulation for employers and employees. This time last year, in the first episode of 2018, I talked about a submission that the Irish Central Bank had made to the Law Reform Commission, and in that paper, they had proposed a new regime for increased levels of individual accountability for managers and senior executives in the Irish banks, something along the lines of the UK senior manager regime. At the time, it was nothing more than a proposal, but 12 months on, it has gained significant momentum, to the point that the government has now accepted the proposal and committed to introducing something along these lines in legislation in the near future. The background to the initial submission from the central bank was a review into the tracker mortgage scandal, and the whole purpose and tone of that review was the lack of individual accountability and responsibility within the retail banks. As a result, the legislation is going to make that one of its core objectives, but it won't just be limited to retail banks, it's going to apply to certain insurance companies and other credit institutions also. The main platform for achieving this is going to be what the CBI refer to as the Individual Accountability Framework. And there are four key elements to this. Firstly, statutory standards of behaviour for financial services employers and employees, very much along the lines of the UK Financial Conduct Authority's conduct rules. Secondly, the legislation will introduce a senior executive accountability regime, again, which is going to be very much based on and almost look identical to the UK senior manager and certification regime. So if any of you are already familiar with that, you'll know what's coming. Thirdly, the legislation will introduce what the CBI refer to as an enhancement to the current fitness and probity regime. But I think in reality what it means is tightening up of the standards under that regime and an increase in the standards that employees covered by the regime will be expected to meet. And then finally, a unified enforcement process for financial services breaches. In practice, this is designed to make it easier for prosecutors to identify and prosecute financial services breaches or breaches of financial services regulations anywhere where they are identified. To get into the nuts and bolts of what this will look like when it is rolled out, it will involve responsibility maps. In effect, this means each employer is going to have to identify the various obligations, responsibilities and functions within its organisation and identify and name the individuals within the organisation who has ownership for that particular function and responsibility. The whole idea here is to make it almost impossible for managers where a breach occurs to say, I didn't realise that was part of my responsibility, I thought that was somebody else's. In fact, the CBI review talks about making it impossible for senior executives to hide behind the collective. To give you some good news on this, at a recent briefing from a senior director within the CBI, she indicated that the regime is unlikely to be in place any time before 2021, and indeed it could even be after that point. However, It is already a live and hot topic for employers for two reasons. Firstly, to the extent that there's any opportunity to shape or influence this particular legislation before it becomes law, 
Now is the time to do so through industry lobby groups and similar discussions. And we've already been in discussions with a number of clients who have experience of the UK model and where that could be improved before the same mistakes are introduced under the Irish regime. Secondly, for employers who have been through the rollout of this regime in the UK, you will know just how much work is involved in identifying the responsibility maps and agreeing the level of responsibility that each individual will be taking on within their own particular brief. That is going to take time and the prudent employers are already working on this. We'll keep you updated on this over the next 12 months, but as I say, it is an issue that is already live. You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. So let me turn now to Geraldine Carr, the newest partner in the Matheson Employment Pensions and Benefits Group, who's going to talk about the gender pay gap legislation. So Geraldine, what's the update? Thanks, Brian. Well, there are still two bills on gender pay gap reporting working their way through the government process. So there's the government bill and then there's the Labour Party private members bill. And the government has indicated that it wants to proceed with its own bill, but it's unclear as to when we'll see text for this bill. The government has published its legislative programme for spring and the gender pay gap legislation hasn't been given priority status for that session. My sense is that it will still be a priority for this government and it should be given priority status later in the year. To recap what we know about the government bill so far is that it provides for similar thresholds to the UK in that it will apply to employers with over 250 employees initially and that threshold is proposed to gradually decrease to over 150 employees and finally to employers with over 50 employees. And those thresholds will apply equally to employers in both the public and the private sector. The heads of terms of the bill suggest that employers who meet such thresholds will have to publish information in relation to differences in hourly pay, differences in bonus pay, part-time pay and the pay of men and women on temporary contracts. And they might also have to publish differences in pay by reference to job classifications. So employers are going to want to know, well, what penalties or sanctions might be issued for non-compliance? And this is yet to be determined, but in broad terms, we expect the legislation will provide that orders might be issued by the circuit court requiring an employer to comply or that an employee themselves may apply to the Workplace Relations Commission for an order directing compliance. And there may also be on-site inspections of employers to ensure that the information published is accurate. Of course, a key concern for employers, though, will be the potential negative publicity and reputational consequences that could arise from any negative data. So you might ask, well, what should employers do now to prepare? Well, they should use this time to get their house in order, carry out a preparatory audit by gathering and reviewing payroll data and benefits to identify any unintentional gaps or disparities that might exist. They should consider how they're going to carry out such audits. They should consult, for example, with their finance and their HR teams on this. Consider whether they have existing staff who can carry out this function or whether staff training is required or whether external supports are necessary. For example, do they need technology or software to use to carry out the analysis? And as well as that, employers should consult with their PR or marketing advisors on how they will manage the publication of their data. And finally, employers should review HR policies now, such as their diversity and their equal opportunity policies, to try to address any discrimination issues before they arise. Thanks, Geraldine. That's definitely one we'll have to keep an eye on. 
If I can turn now to my employment partner, Niall Pelly. Niall is going to talk about the employment miscellaneous provisions legislation, which is coming into effect on the 1st of March. So Niall, what does this mean for employers over the next 12 months? Thanks, Brian. Uh, the Employment Miscellaneous Provisions Bill was actually signed into law by President Higgins on Christmas Day. So it's now the Employment Miscellaneous Provisions Act of 2018. Uh, whether th- this act was the gift under the Christmas tree that uh, employees had earnestly hoped for remains to be seen, but initial views suggest not. There are three main components to the act, which I'll briefly bring you through. And there's also one significant omission. Of the three main components that have been widely reported, the first is the so-called prohibition on on zero-hours contracts. So a zero-hours contract of employment is a type of employment contract where an employee is required to make himself or herself available for work, but does not actually have specified hours of work. So this typically arises where a contract specifies that an employee is required to make themselves either available for a set number of hours in a week or on an as-and-when basis but they have no guarantee of work. Now, the legislation actually changes very little in that regard, and it's certainly debatable whether it it actually achieves its aim of prohibiting zero-hours contracts. So I I think that's certainly something that needs to be looked at going down the line. The second main change is in relation to the obligation to provide core terms to employees within five days of starting employment. So this is a written statement of core terms that must include the full names of the employee and the employer, the address of an employer, the duration of a temporary contract or the date in which the contract expires, the rate and method of calculation of the employee's pay, and the normal working hours. It's an offence not to provide this within one month or to provide false or misleading information. And there's also personal liability for directors and secretaries of the company and so forth. Sanctions are up to €5,000, or imprisonment not exceeding 12 months or both. So that tends to focus the mind somewhat. The nature of the terms themselves shouldn't be that difficult to put together, but it's really the the fact of the potential offences, the fact that it arises so quickly upon the commencement of employment that employers need to be alive to that from the outset. The third major element relates to banded hours. And so the Act introduces the concept of an entitlement to banded hours and banded hours contracts will be available to help employees whose actual hours don't reflect their contracted hours over a reference period of 12 months. So basically, in a situation where an employee, their contract of employment, for example, specifies that they work 20 hours a week, but in reality, they work 30 hours or or 40 hours a week. What this act now will do is will allow that employee to request that they are placed in the appropriate band that actually reflects the amount of work that they uh, habitually carry out over the reference period. And that in turn will also create a measure of certainty for the employee that they will know that they will not get less than the minimum hours within that band in terms of their employment going forward. Now, how that will be enforced in practice remains to be seen. The Act does allow an employee to bring a complaint to the the Workplace Relations Commission for breach of the the banded hours provision and the the Workplace Relations Commission can instruct the employer to comply with the banded hours provision but the WRC does not on its face have the power to award compensation in in respect of such a breach. So it, it seems to be very much along the lines of 
employees putting their hands up to be placed in, in a certain band. And then it assumes that this will be the position that applies going forward. So it remains to be seen how, uh, how that will actually work out in practice. So those are the three main components to the Act. It had been proposed that a misclassification of an individual as being a, an independent contractor as opposed to an employee, that that could be deemed to be a criminal offence and could give rise to a fine of up to €5,000 or imprisonment of up to 12 months, which would be quite a draconian outcome in circumstances where it is notoriously difficult to ascertain whether an individual is an employee or an independent contractor. So that will provide some solace for employers going forward. So I think that covers the main aspects of the 2018 Act. It remains to be seen how it will operate in practice. It's important to note that it will, in fact, only come into force on the 1st of March 2019. So that will provide at least a period of time to take stock of of its provisions and to prepare for its implementation going forward. Let me turn now to my pensions partner, Deirdre Cummins. Deirdre, I know there's certain issues coming up for employers in the pensions world. Can you bring me through them? Thanks, Brian. There are two things I wanted to mention to you today in terms of what to watch for pensions in 2019. The first is the IRPS 2 directive. Now, just to give you a bit of background on this, this is a European directive which is designed to facilitate the development of occupational retirement savings across the EU. And in practical terms, its transposition into Irish law will introduce a range of new requirements for pension schemes. These include things like pension scheme governance, trustee qualifications, management standards. And employers really need to be aware of this to ensure that their pension schemes are compliant with the various requirements. For example, trustees would need to comply with the expertise and experience requirements set out in the directive. The deadline for transposition was the 13th of January, so that has now passed and we had expected that transposition would take place through the adoption of regulations. However, to date, we haven't seen any such regulations and the latest on this is that a statement was issued by the Department of Employment Affairs and Social Protection and what that says is that the department is working on the transposition of the directive into Irish law during the first quarter of this year. So while it was due to be implemented on the 13th of January, I think it will certainly be another few weeks before we see any kind of regulation to that effect. The other interesting point, if I could, just to mention from that statement from the department is that the directive allows member states a discretion not to apply some of the provisions to smaller pension schemes. And pension practitioners were definitely watching that one to see whether Ireland would exercise that discretion. It seems now from this statement from the department that there will be no such derogation in Irish law, as the department has said that all schemes should be subject to these protections and that to exclude small schemes would be contrary to this policy. It is also notable that from the transposition onwards, 
single member schemes will no longer be allowed to enter into new borrowing agreements. So that means they won't be able to borrow except for short term and liquidity purposes. So that's definitely a new restriction and is one to watch. The final thing I want to say in relation to IORPS 2 is that we can also expect codes of practice to be issued from the Pensions Authority. And essentially what we expect these to do is to expand on the requirements set out in the transposing regulations and I suppose in effect explain in practical detail what the authority expects to see in order for pension schemes to demonstrate compliance with the directive. The other significant item, Brian, is the introduction of auto-enrolment. And I want to briefly update you on where that's at and what we can expect in 2019. As you'll be aware, last year, the government published a roadmap for pensions reform. And as part of that, it proposed the introduction of an auto-enrolment system by 2022. Now, how this was running, towards the end of last year, there was a public consultation and a straw man proposal was published, essentially setting out some of the detail around auto-enrolment and how that would work in practice. The consultation period finished at the end of last year and the idea was the government would have some time to consider the feedback it received with a view to finalising the design of the system by the first quarter of 2019 and then developing legislation to give effect to that by the end of the first quarter of 2020. However, recently, the Minister for Employment Affairs and Social Protection has been quoted as saying that the proposals for auto-enrolment in the public consultation were ripped to bits, and I'm quoting there, as part of the public consultation. And she has said, therefore, that the shape of the plan could change dramatically. She also acknowledged that a hard Brexit could halt the plans altogether. So what happens next, we don't really know. I know, for example, IBAC has been quite vocal in calling for the top rate of contribution proposed in the strawman for employers to be reduced from 6% to 3%. And the minister has rejected that idea, saying that she didn't pull the figures out of nowhere. So there is some further consideration needed in relation to the shape of auto-enrolment and how that might be introduced. And while I think it certainly is further away than we originally anticipated. I don't think it's going away and I think it might be later in the year before we see anything definitive on what form it will take. Thanks, Deirdre. And for any of you who are interested in a little bit more detail around the pensions proposals, Deirdre and Jane McKeever, a senior associate in a pensions practice, have a separate Matheson Pensions Law podcast series, which you'll find on our website also. You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. And finally, Russell Rochford has now joined us. Russell is another partner in the Matheson Employment Practice. And Russell is going to talk to us about the GDPR and our experience so far, but more importantly, the trends we expect to see in this area over the next 12 months. Russell, how do you see this panning out over the next 12 months? Thanks, Brian. In our podcast this time last year, we looked at what the GDPR would mean for employers in 2018. And not surprisingly, we predicted that data subject rights and in particular access rights to data would be the area that we would see most activity for employers. As expected, since the implementation of the GDPR in May last year, employers have experienced a significant increase in the volume of data subject access requests from not only existing employees, but also prospective and former employees. In the large majority of disputed terminations and severance type arrangements that I worked on last year, and I can safely say the same for the rest of the team as well, 
a data subject access request was submitted by the employee. Of course, this is you know primarily a negotiating tactic used by the employee and their representative, but it's because they now know that the obligations on employers to deal with access requests are not only more onerous under the GDPR, but also the consequences for an employer of breaching those obligations are more serious. We therefore expect to see this trend continue into 2019 and indeed for access requests to become even more common. And I'll explain why this is the case in more detail in just a bit. We've also seen employees all too ready to submit complaints to the Data Protection Commissioner when they've not been satisfied with the manner in which an employer has dealt with their subject access request. And this is actually mirrored in the significant increase in complaints being made generally to the DPC. A lot of these complaints, though, seem to relate to the fact that quite a few employers are pushing back on access requests and seeking to rely on, amongst other things, the fact that the GDPR permits an employer to extend the 30-day period for compliance by up to 60 days and to even refuse to comply with the request where it's manifestly unfounded or excessive. However, the ability of an employer to extend the compliance period and to refuse to comply has not been tested yet under the new regime. But our view is that these mechanisms can only really be used very much as an exception rather than the norm. Whether these sorts of issues result in enforcement actions and administrative fines against employers remains to be seen in light of the bigger fish that the DPC has to fry. But we have to assume that some employers will be caught by this. In any event, we understand that the Data Protection Commissioner is considering a large number of enforcement cases at the moment relating to all of the GDPR notifications and complaints that have been made to her office since May last year. Given the time period it would have taken the DPC to process these since then, we expect that our office will start issuing enforcement actions and administrative fines, perhaps towards the end of quarter one and then into quarter two of this year. When this happens, it'll invariably draw more attention to data protection matters generally and further heighten the awareness of employees and their representatives of their rights and the redress that they can seek. We therefore not only expect to see a further increase in data access requests, we also expect to see more complaints to the DPC, but particularly in employees bringing data protection proceedings before the courts seeking damages. We also have to be very aware that the GDPR and 2018 Act permit class-type actions to be brought by not-for-profit organisations such as trade unions, so we also need to watch that space carefully. You may already be aware that we have issued a series of articles on GDPR and HR and a number of podcasts last year, so if you're looking to consider how best to prevent these issues arising and how to deal with them, you can access these and indeed talk to any of the employment team. So on that note, um, I'll hand back to you, Brian. So there you have it. They are our key five themes for the next 12 months. As always, we'll keep you updated on any changes or developments we see in this area. No doubt, as always, there will be other surprises and we'll keep you updated on those also. Thanks for listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email brian, that's B-R-Y-A-N dot done at matheson.com. This podcast contains general information about Irish law. It is not intended to provide legal advice on any particular matter and is for general information purposes only. You should not act or refrain from acting on the basis of any material contained in this podcast without seeking the appropriate legal or other professional advice. Tune in next time for another Matheson Employment Law podcast. 
For further information, visit matheson.com.